Today's escape pod is brought to you by Audible.com. More details after the story. For a risk-free trial and audiobook download, go to audible.com forward slash escape pod SFF. Escape pod 189. March 4th, 2009. Today's story, The Botox School of Acting by Liz Shannon Miller. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your guest host, Jeffrey R. Dorigo. This week's story is The Botox School of Acting by Liz Shannon Miller. You know, it's almost springtime, time when a young man's fancy turns to thoughts of love, and for some of us at least, to the return of baseball. Baseball is going to be in a funny place when the season starts up this year because of Alex Rodriguez. When recently he admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs back during the 2003 season, back before he became the highest-paid ball player on earth and the highest-paid ball player in the history of the game, back when he only aspired to a spot on a playoff roster and in the Hall of Fame, he juiced back in 2003, the season that made all of these noteworthy accomplishments possible. He juiced back when the legal and career consequences weren't really all that well established either. Since then, though, we've had Senate hearings, asterisks, and a secretive list of 100-plus other players who've tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. And performance-enhancing drugs don't necessarily make them better baseball players. They make them stronger and faster and more agile, and that leads to levels of gameplay unattainable without some measure of enhancement that forces the unaugmented players to either join in with the doping or be hopelessly outplayed. It becomes a sort of chemical arms race, where the natural talent and training of the player is secondary to the combination of steroids and growth hormones used to bulk up, flex up, and speed up. Who creates all this pressure to be better than the best, even at the risk of health, career, and legacy? We do. Spectators. We consumers. We fans. We want to see perfection out on the diamond. We want 70-plus home runs in a season. We want no hitters. We want 20-point blowouts and dozens upon dozens of stolen bases. And to get that, we need guys like Alex Rodriguez to be better than us by such a vast measure that he and his teammates become almost a platonic ideal, not just of baseball, but of athleticism itself. We need them to be so good that the game wouldn't even be the same if they didn't play it. It's a vicious circle, and we, eating our popcorn and Cracker Jacks along the first baseline, sit right at the center of the vortex. We tolerate it, perhaps, because most of us, for all our head-shaking and finger-wagging, would do the exact same thing if given the same opportunity. And that leads directly to this week's story. The Botox School of Acting is an escape pod original, that is, a story that has not appeared anywhere else. Liz Shannon Miller is a playwright and filmmaker currently living in Los Angeles, whose fiction has previously appeared in On Spec Magazine, 365 Tomorrows, and Well Told Tales. Today's reader is Danny Cutler from the Truth Seekers podcast at audioaddict.libsyn.com. Look for the URLs in the show notes. So take a deep breath. You might feel a pinch and just a little temporary discomfort, but in the end, you'll wonder why you didn't make the leap sooner. Get ready. It's story time. The Botox School of Acting by Liz Shannon Miller Lunchtime at the cafe next door is like a fashion shoot. Slim legs displayed just so, adorned with delicate anklets, the shortest of skirts. People stop and stare. Sometimes they take pictures. The girls don't mind. Ten years ago, they were a little sensitive. Ten years before that, it was taboo. But now the sign on the door glimmers with fake gold. Admittance to the school is a point of pride. 
and the tour buses drive by at 12.05 on the dot, just in time to see Harry's class take their noontime break. Only the best gain acceptance. Harry cannot be bought. Twice a year, he attends the fashion shows, looking for an unknown to transform. But most of the time, they come to him. The beautiful, the elegant, the desperate. They plead with him, their eyes containing all the emotion their faces cannot show. The beauties who want to be brilliant, who want to move beyond the limitations of their appearance, who want to act. Boxtresses, people call his students, and Harry doesn't bother to correct the gender assumption, because his class for actors is still ostensibly secret. No one wants to believe that action heroes need to avoid aging. It's their love interests who need to stay fresh. He sees his girls at the award shows, shrink-wrapped in satin and taffeta, their tear ducts aching to empty down their faces. But even when they broadcast in high 3D, their eyeliner shows no hint of smudging, and they each have a smile on their face. That's what he hopes the world remembers him for, a generation of actresses able to cry without tears and smile with every drop of sorrow in their bodies, a generation of actresses acting from within. Shawanda is his youngest student, he thinks. Asking about age is not only rude, but pointless. However, there's still a bit of a pudge left to her cheeks. Her parents started her treatments when she was 13, he estimates, and so she will always look a little bit younger. That's why Harry thinks she'll go just a little bit farther than the other students in intermediate posing. Very good, Shaw. Look, everyone, how Shawanda isn't simply frozen. Observe her arm position, the tilt of her head. Can someone tell me what Shawanda's expressing at this moment? Brittany raises her hand, her eyes trained on Shawanda's form. Despite her eagerness to answer, after thirty years with his girls, Harry can tell that she's paying more attention to Shawanda's size 0.25 thighs, just a bit too big to fit into the fall couture. Brittany, he knows, is gloating inside. She's expressing pity, Harry. Interesting. Why do you say that? She's using the Royal Antoinette shoulder tilt, but combining it with the Nightingale lean. She thinks she's better than us, but she's sorry about it. Harry nods. Did she get it right, Shawanda? Shawanda breaks from her pose to stamp her feet. I was expressing grief, like when your cat or your agent dies. You know, sad but relieved you don't have to feed them anymore. Brittany snorts. Close enough. Go fuck yourself, bitch. The class laughs. Go fuck yourself, bitch, is Brittany's catchphrase on the hit sitcom Fuck Your Mother. Brittany just sits there, seething inside, the corners of her mouth almost daring to turn down. Harry picks Meg to go next. Meg's posing skills are weak, something her journalism degree from Columbia didn't quite prepare her for. It's not a class the networks require for their anchors, but Meg wants to be well-rounded. Meg makes an awkward attempt at the basic panther posture, and the other ten girls breathe a little easier, their shoulders relaxing. None of them can talk about peace summits with the authority Meg brings to the subject, but that doesn't matter. Meg looks like a llama mid-tap dance. For one second, everyone feels superior. The panther is what Harry tells the students to call it, but he's never seen a cat lean in for the kill quite the way these girls do. Harry gets beamed the summons on a Wednesday morning, right before a workshop on the dramatic pause, and for a moment he can't help but grin at the screen on his deck.
After all, never in his younger, wilder fantasies did he expect the United States Congress would have any interest in what he said or did. But when he sees some of the people listed on the paperwork, including that one all-too-familiar name, the grin fades. He's got the number tapped in and his deck up to his ear before he even really realizes what he's doing. Part of him wishing that he was a calmer man. The other part focused only on the beeps echoing down the line, the pause before connection. Candace, what the hell, what the damn hell is this? A sigh on the other side. I'm sorry, you weren't supposed to be served today, but some of the paperwork got mixed up. I meant to call. Would have been nice, the polite thing to do. I just said I'm sorry, and I really am. He's still angry, but a chunk of it fades. So you're saying this isn't you? Not this summons, no. I've already yelled at Jean, because I was going to warn you. And how long have you been planning this? Only a few weeks, I swear. Now it's his turn to sigh. Candace, what on earth does this mean? It means that it's time for you to talk about what you do. That's all. Just come to D.C. and explain in your own words. Do I need a lawyer? Gods, Candy, what exactly am I accountable for here? You're not personally accountable for anything. You're just a figurehead, a person of note, a maker of history. A maker of history? She laughs, just a little, on a very small scale. You and your cute little lawsuits. He looks down at the paper, already planning to put it on the fridge, next to decaying crayon drawings of dinosaurs. How's my granddaughter? Good, good. She's looking forward to seeing you next week. How's mom? The same. Harry's wife is four years older than him. If they had met as kids, it would have meant a world of difference, but they met as adults, and it wasn't a big deal. Then, that is. Now, the years between them are starting to stretch further and further, both of them stumbling down the same hill, but Alice going just a little bit faster. Alice likes to stay inside, eating meals a smiling young man delivers right before the end of Oprah. Alice will sign the young man's deck with one eye still on the telescreen. Oprah may be a faint echo of her former self, a hologram program with random catchphrases, but she still knows how to captivate an audience. After Oprah, Alice likes to watch old movies, mostly black and white pictures from the pre-digital era, flicks she first saw on those clunky video cassettes that are so very retro-cool now. If Harry's classes could see the fortune in VHS tapes Alice leaves stacked around the living room, a feeling they might eventually recognize as hunger would flood through them. Alice doesn't care much about their value as status symbols, though, using them as coasters when idle. It's what's on the tapes she cares about. Would you look at that, Harry said once, home early enough to join her for Chinese dumplings and the African queen. Look at Catherine Hepburn. Look at her skin. It's skin, Harry. That's what it looks like. But it's a tragedy. What happened to her face? Look at that sagging. If only she'd been born fifty years later, she'd have been beautiful forever. She's still beautiful, Alice murmured. What? Harry asked. Nothing. She ate the last dumpling, went to bed early, her eyes never meeting his. Harry started working later after that. Alice doesn't come to the award shows. She doesn't like missing Oprah. So when winter blooms and the two dozen invitations pour in, Harry RSVPs for two. Himself and his granddaughter, Tania. 
a jumble of energy, skinny as a twig in the designer dresses she loves. They don't fit her right. The bodices sag inward, waiting for her to grow breasts. Harry sees the way people look at Tania and knows they're waiting for the same thing. Tania is only twelve, but she's already saving her money for her first treatment. She babysits on weekends, collects soda cans, sells her older dresses to second-hand stores, and refuses to spend a penny of her allowance, drinking water when she and her friends hang out at Starbucks. She puts it all in a savings account for which Harry co-signed, the closest he's ever officially come to encouraging her. Anything more he knows, and Tania would be packed away to Montana, her beloved couture left behind. Harry enjoys spending time with Tania, he considers her sweet nature and unconditional love to be karmic payback for the wounds inflicted by her mother. He'll never admit to Candace how much it hurt when she turned 18 and fled from home, cutting off all contact. But he suspects that she knows. Just as he knows how upset she was when her name became synonymous with the new woman movement and her cover was blown. Reporters relish the delicious irony behind her parentage, which only helps to secure her reputation as the legal genius with the face that launched a thousand lawsuits. Candace has never shied away from taking advantage of that, but she most decidedly does not enjoy it. With Tania's love for her grandparents almost a force of nature, and Candace's presence demanded at NEWOA's Los Angeles office, Candace and Harry have called a truce. But she keeps a sharp eye on him and her daughter. If NEWOA's new legislation makes it through Congress, there will be no legal Botox for Tania until she turns 18. Harry shudders to think what could happen over the next six years. Pimples, sunburn, even the inevitable teenage tantrums could leave irreparable damage. Harry cannot stand to think of Tania's perfect skin harmed, and Harry knows of a hundred clinics in Los Angeles that don't ask questions, don't take names, and don't leave a mark. So Harry tells himself not to worry. Tania will be taken care of. Harry spends days preparing notes for Congress, which he knows is somewhat out of character for him. Typically, he's a taxes on April 14th, shopping on Christmas Eve sort of man. But the topic is his life's work, and even after all these years, he still finds it inspiring. Harry is thinking about writing a book when he retires, a book on the history of names. Not people names, but brand names. McDonald's, Starbucks, Gap. Aren't many people alive who remember the first McDonald's, let alone how it got its name, and Harry figures that these things are important enough to be noted down. He's been collecting the little stories behind brand names for a while, just as a hobby. Botox was the first. Botox has come a very long way since its introduction. Research and development is more than well-funded, and the serum has been refined constantly over the decades. One treatment will last years, the skin remaining taut, impervious, flawless, while the muscles below learn to hold their shape, learn to pose. The new methods are precise and elegant, so far removed from those first botulism cultures. But brand names are brand names, and Botox has stuck. Harry's already started to write his book, the acknowledgments page at least. He thanks his granddaughter, his wife, maybe name-dropping a few of his more famous students, and then he mentions the men responsible for that first Paleozoic set of treatments, those first test cases that made the whole world imagine what it would be like to look young forever. For creating a world where true beauty never fades, humanity thanks you. He's thought about making the whole book about Botox, but he isn't sure what else there is to say. 
true beauty never fades. He likes that part especially. He writes it down on one of his note cards, in case it comes up. Alice was born on October 31st, and this year they celebrate accordingly. Orange and black decorations, an autumn-colored catered dinner, bowls of candy for Harry students and Candace to ignore. Candace's gift to her mother is Tania with an overnight bag. Tania is the only one Alice likes to share her tapes with. Before Candace leaves, she pulls Harry into the kitchen, her voice low. You leave for D.C. on Thursday? He crosses his arms, looks up. For all her preaching, Candace still approves of the old methods of self-improvement, such as high-heeled shoes. Barbaric. Yes, the eight o'clock flight. You? The same. Really? What a marvelous coincidence. We can share a cab. Harry, I want you to know, candy, it's fine. Exciting, even. A whole Senate subcommittee listening only to me. And I didn't get you anything. He attempts a smile. She rubs her left cheek, an old reflex, breaking the eye contact. You'll be asked to testify about the nature of Botox and its effects on society. I know. I will not ask you to lie, sugarcoat, or say anything that you do not agree with. Do not help me in any way. I don't want it... She sighs. And I don't need it. Understand? No problem, he says. I mean it, Harry. Say whatever you want. But when you do, think about Mom, okay? What about... He starts to ask, but she snorts, spinning on one heel, gone before he can finish. The door swings shut behind her. When he turns to see the untouched birthday cake on the counter by the sink, dozens of half-melted candles lodged into the frosting, he remembers Candace turning 14, and a brilliant idea he'd had, a mother-daughter day at the spa. His idea, his money. His gift to them. Alice had flinched as the needle approached her cheek, though. She wouldn't hold still. Relax, he told her. It doesn't hurt a bit. Look at Candy. She's fine. Sitting in the chair across from Alice, Candace had stared straight ahead, her face still, cool. Her young skin rippling, just a little bit, with the after effects. She's fine, Alice repeated. She's fine. She's fine. The technician lowered the needle again. She's fine, but why can't she say so? Why can't she smile? The words echo in Harry's head, even now. He removes one of the candles from the cake, licking off the frosting. Think about Mom? Alice had crumbled. Alice had been afraid. And, well, there they were. He licks the frosting from another candle. Many more left. Their guests slowly depart, leaving Tania and Alice and Harry sprawled, exhausted, among the dirty plates. Tania gives Alice her present, an ancient tape of Star Wars, the cardboard sleeve warped, soft to the touch. They watch it together, Tania giggling at the costumes, Alice silent, staring at the screen until her eyes slip shut, her breathing low and soft. When Tania starts yawning, Harry turns off the telescreen, leading her to the guest bedroom. Tania wants to be an actress some day. She doesn't mind pretending, for Harry's sake, to be a child. Tell me a story, Grandpa, she says as he pulls the covers up beneath her chin. A scary story. A scary story, huh? How about a story about vampires? Tania's confusion is either genuine or beautifully faked. I don't know what a vampire is. Harry stutters, realizing vampire movies haven't been popular for decades. Um, a vampire is a creature of the undead. They never die, but they need blood to survive. Human blood. 
or they shrivel up into dust. Are they gross, like zombies? No, they're very pale and beautiful. And they live forever? Yes. Tania yawns. They don't sound very scary. Harry nods. They aren't very scary anymore. After all the fuss, all his preparations and rehearsals, Harry is more than a little disappointed by his big moment on the congressional stage. The chamber is smaller than it looks on TV, the wood paneling a bit shabbier than he'd expected, the nicks and flaws standing out clearly. Harry keeps rubbing his palms over the arms of his chair, the bumps in the varnish tickling his skin. It's not the room that disappoints him, though. It's the sense that he's there as a token, that he's ultimately unimportant. He makes a short statement. He's asked a few questions by one slightly bored senator, but he's not sure anyone's listening. Not because they don't take him seriously. Oh, no. It's because they don't take Candace seriously. Candace and her comrades, lined up in the room, jaws clenched tight, as far as Harry can tell, anyway. It hangs in the air like a bad smell. Every man and woman not on any WOA's side doesn't want to be in that room, listening to these speeches. Everyone there doesn't see the point. And as Harry praises the advances made over the past 50 years, some of them subtly stroke their smooth, fresh faces. Silent benedictions to a merciful God, Harry thinks at first, before pulling back from foolish thoughts. Just a reflex. Just a subconscious appreciation of progress. Candace looks straight at Harry as he steps down and exits the chamber. He doesn't look back. His little girl will lose this battle. The kindest thing he can do is not rub it in. It's Harry's first time in D.C., and when booking his tickets, he considered spending a few extra days in the city exploring. But it's pilot season, his busiest time, so Harry is due back at school the next day. He does manage an evening bus tour around to the various monuments, enjoying the cool marble of the statues and columns. He fills his deck with photos, not because he plans to show them to anyone, just to make a record. Back in his silent hotel room, Harry goes into the bathroom to wash up, but pauses as he turns on the strange light, stares into the strange mirror. It's been a while since he's looked at his face, really looked, not just focused on the stubble that needs shaving or the ear hairs that need plucking. And he's startled by the fact that there's this old man looking back at him, an old man with a receding hairline, thick glasses, and wrinkles. So many wrinkles. He stares at this tree trunk of a face, this decrepit old man, unable to see the merry dark eyes, the clean white teeth, the strong jawbone. Instead, he looks at his faults, cataloging them, making notes on how to have them fixed. Laser surgery for the eyes, hair implants are easy enough, he knows, though, that there's nothing to be done about the wrinkles. The wrinkles leave him marked forever. The wrinkles betray his years. It is too late for Harry's skin to learn how to fib. He washes his face, brushes his teeth, and turns out the light, climbing into the large bed with two fluffy pillows. As a rule, Harry never has trouble sleeping, but it's been years since he last had to sleep in a bed without Alice at his side. It comes as a shock how he misses her. So Harry rolls over, trying to conjure up the soft exhales of his wife. He can almost imagine the bulk of her next to him, the pale, smog-tinted moonlight revealing in her face faint traces of the woman he fell in love with. He closes his eyes, imagining Alice on the day of their wedding, impossibly beautiful in her white dress, her veil obscuring her perfect frozen face. She poses for him, her slim limbs revealing every emotion. 
Panther, Antoinette, Willow Tree, Sunrise, Lust, Pity, Sorrow, Joy. Soon he drifts from fantasy to dreams. Dreams of Alice, pale and beautiful, her fangs sinking into Tania's neck. Dreams of Candace, pitchfork raised, half her face melted away, screaming for the head of a mad scientist. Dreams of his students, circling in packs, their long nails ripping each other apart. He doesn't dream of the old man in the mirror. In his dreams, he wears flannel shirts and ripped jeans, the apparel of his adolescence, tribute to a nearly forgotten god who died young and never aged. He wanders through the fog wearing high-topped sneakers, shuffling through an endless gallery of women, each more beautiful than the next. He's never surprised by his subconscious's choice of attire. In his heart, Harry has never felt old. And that's our story. What really strikes me about the Botox school of acting is the way that the imperfect people who live and work around Harry's perfect model-slash-actresses do so like water around a stone. Like the students at Harry's school, for all their ambition, sell off everything that makes them truly human, flash frozen into a permanent forced smile, and leaping toward the timelessness of fame. The students are perfect to the point of interchangeability. The actresses are a means to an end. Tools for popular culture, or politics, or vengeance, take your pick. No matter who dresses the set and for what purpose, the spokesmodels will always smile. We're brought to you this week by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word audio. Check out Audible Frontiers for a run of classic and recent science fiction and fantasy offerings. Don't forget, sign up at www.audible.com forward slash escapepodsff now and get one free audiobook download. And even if you don't stick around, you get to keep the book. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. To hear more of their irradiated and therefore gigantic sci-fi surf punk, check out www.daikaiju.org. That was our show this week. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. If you like this story, please post a blog entry, tell your friends, or better yet, hit the PayPal link on the main page and donate what you can so Escape Artists can continue paying writers for their stories. Our quote this week comes from Count Zero, the second book in the still prescient Neuromancer trilogy by William Gibson. She was blonde, her hair cropped, short for the series role, deeply tanned, and looked as if she was illuminated from within by sun lamps. The blue eyes were inhumanly perfect, optical instruments grown in vats in Japan. She was both actress and camera, her eyes worth several million new yen, and in the hierarchy of SenseNet stars, she barely rated. So, until next time, this is your guest host, Jeffrey R. DeRigo, filling in for Steve Ely, saying, have fun and keep smiling. <laughs>